Our title this morning is simply Alicia, Lesson from a Prophet's Room. Alicia, uh, Lessons from a Prophet's Room. There will be some uh, PowerPoints coming up. Feel free, free to take some photographs if that helps you um, at a later date. We find this helps us as we move on. So let us read together then on Second Kings chapter 2, beginning at uh, verse 8. So the Shunammite woman. So one day Elisha went to the town of Shunem, and a wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her for a meal. And after that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there and eat something with her. And she said to her husband, I am sure that this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Therefore, let us build a room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lampstand. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. Now, the Lord just bless the reading of his word. The theme this morning that we have is making room for Jesus in our life. And some of you here this morning... You haven't received the Lord yet. You don't know him as your Savior yet. And I want to encourage you, as I did many years ago, to let him into your life. And I promise you, you will never regret it. In fact, you will be so thankful that you let him into your life. And I promise you that. So I want to encourage you, first and foremost, if you don't know the Lord, that they let him into your life. Amen? But for those of us who do know the Lord, we still need to make room for the Lord in our life. I found that to be true in my own life, and I have no problem saying that to you this morning. We need to continually make room. So it's learning how to serve the Lord as we see with Elisha the prophet, and making room for Jesus into our, our life. And, and as we, we, we dive into these few bits of furniture, I want to just remind you this morning about the prophet's reward. The, the prophet's reward that is there for each of us. There's a, there's a certain way when we live and act as believers that we actually receive reward and blessing from, 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 from God. And so it's a prophet's reward if you're taking notes. And we are introduced to a woman who, out of the goodness of her heart, decides to invite this man into her home, Alicia. And, and this woman, we are told, was prominent, or, or maybe your translation says wealthy or, or well-known. She was a prominent woman. She was a very important woman among the Shunammite people. And, and what I want to bring out of that is that the Bible tells us that she was prominent for a reason. She had a lot going on. She was well-to-do, she was well-known, well-received, well-respected, but yet she took time, you see, to, to consider the needs of this man, Alicia. And that's what the, 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 the writer's trying to get our attention. Listen, this woman was somebody. She had a lot going on, but yet she took time to see the needs of others. And you know, there's, there's a chance, there's a possibility in our busy world today that, that the world has got all too consumed and and perhaps a wee bit too busy to consider the needs of the people around them. And, and, you know, let us not be that as the people of God. Let us not fall into that category where we, are all of a sudden, we're just a wee bit too busy to, to see the needs of the very person beside us. Amen? So that, that's what we see in that. <clears throat> so, church, let us be careful that we don't get so consumed with living it up. Do you remember that spirit that wants to cause you to, to feel small, but live it up in the world and and that's the same type of spirit that we see at work. And it causes us then to neglect our duties as the light, as a people of God. There's many examples of this and of, of what it is to be conscious of other people. The Bible tells us it's to receive and help strangers when opportunities present themselves. To receive prophets 
or, or to bring that into our day, those who are sent by God, those who labor in, in the work of the, of the ministry in whatever way that may look. And indeed, we're, we're, we're told to receive all who belong and help all who belong to the household of faith. Now, Paul in Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, you see, opportunities will present themselves to you and I. Uh, and with these opportunities comes an opportunity to either take them or not. And when we do take these opportunities, there is a prophet's reward. There's a righteous man's reward and there's a prophet's reward to all who trust the word of God and, and act upon it. And he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Not just some, because I know some people are a wee bit easier than others, aren't they? So, but it says to all people, and especially those who belong to the household of faith. So listen, we've all the more responsibility to help and receive one another. I, I, I rubbed shoulders a lot with the, the brethren growing up, as I often say. And one thing I will say with this, when it comes to business, they give each other the business. They come, and, they, and listen, I know from experience, they didn't look for the cheapest price. They, they give the business. Now, they wanted a fair price, which is business, but they, they didn't expect it for nothing. And you know, if you're an opportunity, perhaps you're a businessman, and you know another businessman, we, we have a responsibility to, to, to give opportunity to that business. Do you understand? But listen, we've also an opportunity to be sensibly priced. We can't be a greedy man. We have to be a fair man. But that's what the Scriptures teach. We have opportunity to do, to, to do, to do good to all people, and especially the household of faith. Now, this woman... She received a stranger into her home, and she fed him. And this home would receive blessings beyond imagination. Now, you need to read on in that chapter when you get home, and you'll see what I'm referring to. But let us not forget to receive others into our home and be hospitable. A lovely verse that we all know is Hebrews 13, and it says, Be sure to welcome strangers into your home, for by doing so, some have unknowingly entertained angels angels. And I've often wondered, excuse me if my theology gets a wee bit warped here, show me a bit of grace, but I've often wondered, do these angels who are disguised as people, do they always smell nice? Do you see? Do they always look nice? Do they even speak the same language as you and I do all the time? Do you see what I'm trying to say? These angels sometimes can be so fabricated in our minds that well, they remind us of our own grannies, somebody that we have no problem welcoming into our homes. See, it's easy to welcome somebody like that into our home, but I honestly do wonder, what about a stranger who is a little different than me, that perhaps challenges me or doesn't just gel with me? And I suspect not all strangers that come our way will be desirable to us. I suspect not all strangers will want to be, we will want to welcome into our home. But the Bible says, be sure to welcome strangers into our home. I've noticed, and especially with the work up in the town that the, that the team does here in the church, that we come across some people who are so broken and, and so desolate and so needy that we find ourselves standing there not exactly knowing what or how we can help this person. That's the reality of, of this world. It's, it's so broken. And actually, it's not always easy. We always haven't got the answers. But what I did notice was people from our church sitting people down and, and talking to them. And 
giving them refreshment and just praying with them and reassuring them, reassuring them. And you know, that could be perhaps the most contact, human contact that person could have had maybe this year. And so although we don't have all the answers, what we did see, what I did see was the people of God just receiving people, strangers, and, and trying to encourage them and give them hope. But the Bible speaks about very clearly a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward. And you get this in Matthew 10, 41 and 42, but let me read it to you. So Matthew 10 and 41 42, it says, and if you, now listen to the words, because it'll make an interest in us about you, because it says this, if you receive a prophet, as one who speaks for God, that's what a, a New Testament prophet is. There is the prophets that speak of, of common events and them things, but this is as one who speaks the word of God to you, you will be given the same reward as a prophet. Now listen, it says, if you receive a righteous person, which is the people of God, because of their righteousness, you will be given a, a reward like theirs. He goes on to say, if you give even a cup of water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. There's a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward, the Bible talks about. Now, what does a prophet's reward look like in a whole? I want to tell you what it is. In we started off reading in verse 8. If we went back to verse 1, I'll just tell you the story. You'll see an example of what it is to be rewarded as a prophet. We read about a wife of a prophet whose husband has just died. And she says to Elisha, my husband is dead and you know that he feared God. You know that he was a man of God. That's the point of them wording. You know he was a, a righteous man. He didn't just act as such. You know what he was. And she says to Elisha, my husband is dead and you know that he feared God. And now his creditor is, com is coming to take away my two children as his slaves. These two children was all this woman would ever have to have a future. Without these children, she was dead. She was gone. This woman ha has nothing in her home but one jar of oil, and she's all out. She's all spent. She has no social care to feed her entitlement that we have today. She is out. She's dead. And she's about to lose everything in the form of her two sons just to pay debts. But Elisha the prophet instructs her to borrow some empty jars from her neighbors. Not just some, but many empty jars. As many as she can get. He then tells her to go inside and shut the door. You and your sons and pour oil into these jars. Setting the full ones aside as you go. It's a reminder of the closet place to go in and shut the door with God. It's a reminder of that. But from one jar she were told she filled all the jars that they had gathered up. And were told these words, when there was no more jars, the oil stopped flowing when she was full. When, when she was so full, she began to overflow. What's that remind you of? The psalmist speaks of it. This overflowing where, where God, just in his abundance, would give into his people this prophet's reward. And he says to her, go then and sell the oil and pay off your debt. Then you and your sons can live on the remainder. Pay off your debt and live. That's the gospel. Your debt's paid, now go and live. That's what a prophet's reward looks like. When we receive a prophet, when we receive the, the, the people of God, the righteous, when we see, receive people in the name of the Lord, God takes our lack, whatever that is, and he causes it to overflow. Why? Because we're the people of God who's living as such. Think of the words of David in Psalm 37. I've had people debate this with me, but I don't care. I'm, I'm taking what the Word says, because this is what it says. David says, I was once young. He says, but now I'm old. I'm an old man now. He says, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned. 
and I've never seen the people of God beg bread. I've had people say to me, well, I've seen the people begging bread. And I says, well, either the Bible's wrong or they weren't righteous. But that's what the Word says. The righteous people, those who love the Lord and live for the Lord, will not beg bread. And that's what David says. That's the prophet's reward. They, they overflow, out of their abundance of nothing comes an abundance of everything. That's the prophet's reward. And, and Jesus says, give and it will be given on to you, you see. See, we have to give to receive people, to receive people in their life, to help people. It's costly, but the Lord's no man's debtor. And any man that gives out of his poverty, out of his poverty will come abundance. And that's what I see with this prophet's reward. Part of our light as believers comes from how we welcome and help others. Jesus says, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds. So the prophet's reward, and we move on, is God takes our lack whatever that is, and causes it to overflow. Amen. Then here's the prophet's closet place. And this is a place that we all have as the people of God. And perhaps some of us, our, our closet place needs to be rearranged this morning. And we need to get it into order. There's been times in each of our lives where we, we can neglect that place and, and we just need to set it in order. But the Shunammite woman, she saw Alicia coming and going to the town now, after time, we're told, if you read carefully, she persuaded him to come into her home and eat food with her. And we're told that Alicia accepted her invitation, and so much so that every time he passed by, he felt that he could go to this person's house and, uh, and receive food and energy and rest. But listen, there came a time in this woman's life where she perceived, that King James says, that this man wasn't just a man, but he was a man of God. And I pray for each of us this morning that we get a glimpse of who God is again. That we realize that Jesus isn't just some man, but he's the man. And she, got a, she perceived that this man was the man of God because she didn't really know that at start. She was unknowingly entertaining a prophet of God. And here she says to her husband, let us make room upstairs for him and let us put in a bed and a table and a chair and I put in lampstand there. That's what the New King James Version says. I like that word lampstand better just than lamp. It reminds us of Old Testament principles, that lampstand. And so when he, when he comes to us, she says, he can stay here. And what we see is this woman made room for Elisha in her home. What a picture of the sinner who receives the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, we have room for Christ, room for God in our life. And church, I say this gracefully, but... Let us continue to make room for the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. Amen. You know what I mean. We need to make room for, for him. Uh, even in ministry, I, I can see at times where the Lord gets pushed out of, of my wee room, uh, my life, because of the, 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 the constant go of ministry. And you have to stop and realize there's, there, there's a place we need to keep secret in our life, in our hearts. And this woman prepared a room for the presence of God to reside within her own house. And and in this room, she placed four simple pieces of furniture. And you know, it's been said that these four pieces of furniture are needed to have a well-furnished Christian life. Let us make sure as we consider these briefly that these four things are, are prominent in our life. If they're not in our life, presently we, we get them back into our life. And we, we don't leave here thinking, oh, I'm condemned. But no, this is, this is instruction that we can reflect. Let us make sure that we have these four things in our life. So, so there's the bed. Now, some of us love the bed. 
but not in that sense. The bed in, in Christian service is not lying in the dinner time and staying up all night watching Netflix. That is not what the bed reflects at all. That's the world. That's the old flesh. But here, the bed here is symbolic. Remember, it's to do with Elisha, the prophet, the man of God. These are things that are in his life. You want to be used of God. You want to make a difference. Learn from this man. That's what I'm doing this morning, learning why was he important for this man. The bed here is symbolic of rest and service and in the busyness of life. Oh, thank God, church, we've got a glimpse of that. A couple of years ago, the search and I, we debated heavily about this topic. We're too busy. How are we too busy? We're too busy, I'm telling you. We're too busy. There's no room for God, and it's all about him, but where is he in it? Where's the fruits? And we debated this, and we sought God, and we, we realized, you know something? Over the years, we've been too busy, too busy, just doing whatever we felt was right. This here speaks of symbolic of rest and service, and the church must learn in our calling to have rest in their life. It's okay to have rest. The life of a prophet, to share the word whenever way we do as a church, is at times tiresome. And rest in the life of the church is just as important as preaching the gospel. And yes, I did say that. Rest is just as important as preaching the gospel. The come two together, or the two come together, we can't have one without the other, or we end up sick. And many a man's ended up sick mentally in his mind and his spirit because he, he consumed one and absolutely neglected the other. Then churches have become sick because they consumed the rest and haven't put any work into the other, and, the, and therefore they're sick spiritually. They come together, the both. Now, Jesus says this, <clears throat> Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That tells me the church shouldn't be weary and burdened. Because in the Lord, there's rest. Even in service, there's, there's, there's rest. He says, Take my yoke and learn from me, he says. Learn from me. We're learning from the man of God, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, my load is not heavy and hard to carry. It's not. But yet it can be we don't rest. Now, Elisha, as he walked with God, he rested with God. And I love that. And I'm speaking that over your life this morning. Walk with God and rest with God. Don't feel you have to be always doing and never being. Elisha walked with God and he rested with God. And he let God work through him, church, each day. He didn't run around like a busy man trying to do stuff for God. Francis Dixon said this. Now, I have it up there. Hopefully you can see it because it's, I had to read it a few times and I got it. <clears throat> there is a difference between working for God and letting him work through you. To work for him involves fatigue and strain. But to let him work through us means joy and fruitfulness. You see, there's a difference. And pray that joy and fruitfulness will be our portion. We must learn to rest and let him work through us as we rest in service. I've defined it as this, keeping our hand on the plow, but allowing the Holy Spirit to move it along. Amen. How often are we guilty for trying to do God's work for him and telling him where we're going and what direction we need to do and do this and go there? But as keeping our hand on the plow, rest doesn't mean you let go of the work of God. That's not biblical. We press on. We, we, we do the work of an evangelist. We, not till the Lord calls us do we retire, but but we keep our hand on the plow, but we rest and we allow the Lord to lead us and guide us. What does Zechariah 4 say, church? Not by might. I'll push the plow this way. Not by power, this strength, the power of our minds. 
No, but my spirit, but by my spirit. Rest and labor. Now listen, some of you need to know this one. There's rest from an overactive mind. The old enemy can get our minds overactive. And we lose our peace. We lose our joy and we lose our rest in God. But Isaiah 26, what does it say? But you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. So we need a rest from an overactive mind. Amen? There's rest from fear and there's rest from uncertainty. Some of you have got uncertainty about the future in your, in your heart. Listen, we need a rest in God. Trust God. John 14, 27, Jesus says, listen to the church, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. What's the world give you? The opposite of peace, anxiety and fear. Let not your hearts be troubled, church, neither be afraid. That's the rest in God. We rest in God, our hearts be not troubled. And here's another one the church needs to be finding rest from, the Christian. The burden of sin in our life. The burden of sin. The church is not to be overcome with the burden of their sin of the flesh in their life. Why? Because at the cross at Calvary's Hill, Jesus took upon himself the sin of all the believers, your sin and my sin. Do you know the sin you've wrestled with this week? Well, he died for it and he took it from you. You're free from it. It does have no hold on you. You're not bound by it anymore. It's gone. That's the, that's the gospel, the good news. You will wrestle with sin. And listen, sin at times will beat you but it doesn't have the victory over you. That's the gospel. When sin grabs a hold of the church, she confesses her sin. She looks to the church or the cross and she shakes it off because the Bible tells us through the blood of Christ, we have peace with God. So listen, there's somebody here and you're bound by sin and you're wrestling with sin and you need to find rest from it because God has taken it from you. Amen. And when you realize he's taken it from you, you'll find yourself being free from sin. The more you wrestle to stop sin, the more you wrestle with sin and sin. Paul found that. The more he tried not to do something, the more he did it. But the more he realized that my sin is forgiven and taken, he stopped wrestling with it, and all of a sudden, he stopped doing it. Romans 5, speaking to the church, but as, now speaking to the church now, as people sinned the more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Our, our more familiar translation with me would, where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. So at the cross, we find rest for the burdens of our sin. The Christian must find rest in many areas, and it's always in Christ. I'll, I'll move on with this one Psalm 62. He says, truly my soul finds rest in God, not in his works in God. My salvation comes from him. He is my rock, and he's my salvation. He is my fortress, and therefore I will never be shaken, because he found rest in him. Amen. That was the longest one now. Then there's the table. <clears throat> Excuse me. The table is symbolic of communion, relationship, fellowship, if you like, where we sit down with the Lord. Sit down. We sit down as a family. We commune. The table, there could be other interpretations, but this is my interpretation. It speaks of my relationship with Jesus, my personal communion with him this morning. And it's a reminder of the, personal, the importance of personal fellowship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing about Elisha, the man of God. He spent time in the presence of God. We can't speak for God if we don't sit in the presence of God. We can't rub off and, and be a light like Christ if we don't spend time with Christ. The table speaks of perhaps even the closet place 
in our, in our life. And listen, you can, you can recreate that room in your life if it's not there. Don't condemn yourself. Acknowledge if it's, if it's there, rejoice and strengthen it. But if, if it's been neglected, we have an opportunity to put that room in our house again. <clears throat> Prayer changes a person for the good. It was Leonard Ravenhill who said this. Now listen, if you're struggling with the burden of sin in your life, he said that the secret of praying is praying in secret. He says a sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. Did you get that? When we stop praying, we'll sin. When we start praying, we'll stop sinning. When we sit at the table with Christ, we become like him. And when we dwell with him, we no longer spend time dwelling in sin. There's a simple analogy. I recall a sermon from the late Leonard Ravenhill. I do quote him often. I, I, he fascinated me, really. Um, I do believe he's related to Julie Gray in some reason, isn't he? Some way. <coughs> if you want a wee bit of the anointing, rub shoulders with our sister. <coughs> Excuse me, it's in the blood. But this man knew God. He knew God. If you don't know who he is, you can look him up. He, he knew God. And he could preach to people in certain ways because he lived it. And if I preached the way he preached, I'd be stoned because I wasn't living. He lived it. And he, he, he could challenge people because he knew he walked them paths. And he was teaching his church one time on the importance of prayer in their life. And he spoke to his church and he said this to his church. And I thought it was wonderful. He says, listen, maybe one of you is the key to revival. Think of that. That's the importance of communion with God because he could just speak to you and you could be the very avenue or vessel that he uses to usher into revival into your church and into the community. The man of God, God in the, uh, in the Bible, m must each ha have a time, a place before the Lord, with, with the Bible, sorry, before the Lord. Here's the thing. Think of Abraham. <clears throat> he waited on God and he knew the secrets of God. He knew stuff that he didn't even understand and we, we only understood years later. He could see a land, a nation that wasn't even thought of. It was never mentioned in Scripture, but he could see it afar off. He knew the secrets of God. And in fact, on hindsight, Ravenhill claimed himself to know the secrets of God, that he said God whispered to him his, his secrets. That's what he claimed one time in an interview, that he, he was so close to God in prayer that he, he says God whispered the secrets of God. I can't testify to that. This man of God did. And that tells me there's a table that we can have, that we can actually know the secrets of God. Now, Enoch, he walks closely with God for 300 years. In fact, he walked so close with the Lord that the Lord passed him by death. He just brought him on home. He was ready, he was ready nearly there. He was that close with God. The table is very important in the life of the church. And you know, there's many a church that's left the table of communion with Christ outside the door. Well, how do you know that? Because Jesus told me, and he told you, and it's written in the book of Revelation. Because Revelation 3 speaks to the church, the Laodicean church, which is known as the end times church, the history that we're in. And, and he, he asks them, and he, he knocks at the door, and he pleads them to let them back into the services, to let them back into their home. And that's what the Bible says. So that's how I know there's a church, and churches can leave the Lord himself outside in the, in the cold. Now think of that Jebusite spirit we finished on two weeks ago which seeks to regain control of our holy city. And Jesus says, I'm standing at the door and knocking at the church. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to his home and share a meal with him and he with me. There's a table of communion with the Lord. The table is a very important piece of furniture in our life. 
And here's the thing as we move on to the next one. Whoever sits at this table of our heart has our ear. We'll either hear the whispers of God or we'll hear the whispers of someone else. Then there's the stool. Now, the stool has various different things. And as I thought about a stool, well, it's not like the office chair in there. You could sleep on it. But the stool is a wee bit more refined. You have to be a wee bit more, if the posture, if your posture needs to be in a certain way or you'll fall on the floor. It speaks of stillness, of readiness to receive instruction before the Lord. It's stillness and instruction, if I put it in two ways. And I believe the church needs to redevelop the art of being still before God again. And I'm guilty for it. I like a bit of noise in the background. I like something going on when we're seeking God. I, I, I like that. I like the altar of the, of, of, the, of the worship team when we're praying. But there is something about being still uh, before God. Just to simply sit at the feet every now and again. Consider Martha. There's many of us here who are like her. She busied herself. She got all flustered in her walk with Jesus. And we can be like that at times. We can be all flustered. But Mary, on the other hand, she decided to set aside that busyness and well, she took time to sit at a very inappropriate time, may I add. There was luck going on. She took time. Maybe there's luck going on in your life and you're saying, I haven't got time, Pastor, to sit at the feet you have. There is time. I've got time. You've got time. It's amazing how we can make time when, when we need to. Mary took time. She got criticized for it, by the way. But she took time when she sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus. So Christian, the stool is a very important of, of furniture in our life. It's a wee bit about waiting on God. Now there's a story that I don't want to get into too much, but you know when Israel was set free from Egypt and they were, they were coming down to, to, to the crossing and, and Pharaoh decided to change his mind. Why, why did we do that? So he chased after them and he brought choice soldiers. And you know the people of God panicked and all sorts of fleshly words came out of their mouth. And they were forgiven it to Moses high. That Moses was, oh, he was getting it. The fleshless, the flesh was on full display from the people of God. And we don't wait on God, the flesh comes out. And Moses says, listen, fear not. For he will fight for you today. But all you need to do is be still. You see that? Don't get flustered. Don't let the flesh display itself. Don't let it get the glory of God in our lives. Or, or take away the glory of God in our lives. But the Bible says, be still, get the stool into your life. And God says, I'll fight for you. And see that enemy that's coming after you, watch what I will do. Because when we don't sit on the stool, you know what we're actually saying? Step, step aside, God. I'm going to take on Pharaoh's army myself. And many of us have done that, we've ended up shipwrecked. But he says, be still and know that I am God. Get the word of God into us. It says, the word is a lamp onto my feet and a light onto my path. Amen. So the last one now is the lampstand. And I love the lampstand. It shapes a lot of my, my preaching to the church that, that I'm passionate that we live for God. I'm sure you know that by now. And I'm hard on myself. And I suspect at times I'm a wee bit hard here too. But we need to be a lampstand. A witness. A light for the Lord. A testimony the Lord. In Revelation 1, we read about seven churches. Now, take, come with me. You, may, you perhaps know this anyway. The seven churches are called the seven golden lampstands. And what we read is that Christ walks among the churches. And there's many a church has lost the glory of God and the witness of God 
and God stepped out. But listen, Christ is preached in this church. The gospel's preached in this church, and that means Christ still in this church. Amen? And we are a lampstand, and he is a light that shines from the church. Now, the lampstand reminds us of our personal testimony and as our corporate witness as the church to this world. The lampstand speaks of a church and a life that shines for the glory of Christ because if my life doesn't shine for God and your life doesn't shine for God, well, guess what? The church here most certainly will not shine for God. Now, here's an interesting one. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 8, I am the light of the world. And in Matthew 5, 14, he looks at the church and says, now you are the light of the world. Isn't that lovely? What I am, you're going to be. I am going to cause a light to rise up and shine upon you. Isaiah 60, our word for the church, arise and shine, it says. And God says he's going to put his light. He says, I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. Church, we are a lampstand that carries the light of the gospel. Think of that in your own life. Has the enemy perhaps taken that light of yours and caused it to be a wee bit dim? Is it a wee bit, is a bit of smear on it? Does it need a clean? Here's the one, as we shine for God this year, let us shine in the home. There's a challenge place. <clears throat> I often say when we're marrying people, people, you have to understand, marriage is God's mechanism to make you more holier. Couples, don't be afraid to say amen. It's God's mechanism to make you more like Christ. Listen, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, a lot of times when you're not. It gets worse. Even when you're right, you're going to have to let on you're not right. Honestly, that's marriage. I love the, I love the skip down the road and the wee singing and the skipping and the holding hands. And I remember seeing a video on, a, on, on one of the Facebooks, whatever it was, and there's this lovely couple, I'm sure you've seen it, they're walking down, they're holding hands, you see it? And there's a pole, and, and uh, they sort of let go, and they, they join each other's hands, and they come a year or two down the, la- <laughs> the, the line, and they come to the pole, and the woman grabbed his head and smacked it off it. <laughs> she failed the grace test that day, and we're not encouraging that, by the way. You know, <laughs> we're not encouraging that. But you know, I've noticed in my life, when I get to to sure and preach and study the word that most times I come out of the study and I'd go and speak to my wife. I promise you that. And I said, you know something? I've seen something. And I'm sorry. That's the truth. Or do you know how I responded to that there? It was wrong, you know? Now, I was right in what I was saying, but how I said it. And I found that the greatest place where I learned to shine for the Lord is in my home with my family when I realize the flesh displays itself and I don't want it to display. So the first thing I want to say to you, let your light shine in the home. And if it's a wee bit off, don't, don't let it annoy you. Work at it. Work at it. Get your, your ministry right in your home. See your ministry in the street. It'll flourish. Let our light shine then from our home into our workplace. There's no sense being a great man in the workplace if we're an awful man in the home place. Let our light, let our light shine to our whole family, now our broader family, because there's a challenge. Those who are not yet saved and don't understand us, let us be a light to them and make it our business to see them one for the Lord. 
Church, let us to continue to make room for him in our life. Amen.